Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I should have had Frankie go last, because now I'm so distracted, it's hard to preach, but um, I will try to press through, and we will wrap up this little mini-series that we've been on. We're in the midst of a bigger series called Life on Life Ministry, and it's this idea that for as long as there has been a church and there has been Christianity, this faith has spread as one life makes an investment in another life, as one person shows someone else This is how we follow Jesus. This is what it means to grow spiritually. In the midst of that whole letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy, in chapter 3, he gives this long list of qualifications for leaders in the church. He says, if you're going to raise up leaders for this troubled church in a troubled time, they have to be a certain kind of people. And he gives this really long, rambling list of qualifications. It's a bit overwhelming. And like I shared with you before, I, I listed them out. And this is what I came up with. This is a huge list of things, but they could be grouped generally together. And what I realized is this is not just a list of qualifications for spiritual leaders. It is God's way of describing to us, this is what spiritual maturity looks like when a human being grows in Christ. And one of the first groupings we saw was there is a character that's the result of a maturing relationship with ourselves, of being able to tell the truth to ourselves, to see the truth about us, and not to be in denial, not to fight the truth, but to realize that I'm never going to develop character unless I'm able to let the Lord show the truth to me about me. We also saw that there's issues of control and who is in control. And we we met that in two ways. When you're panicking, you're freaking out, and you're wondering who's going to rescue you, who's going to show you a way forward, who do you believe is in control? And when you want to take charge, take control, be your own king, who do you believe is rightfully in control? And so that's a a maturing relationship with God. This morning, we're going to wrap up this mini-series, and we're going to park right here in the third grouping of community. And that is a growing spiritual maturity that expresses itself in healthy relationships with other people. Let me ask you something. Have you ever said in your heart, or maybe even out loud, I like Christ and Christianity, but I could really do without Christians? It's the Christians that get in the way. I am annoyed by people, but I sure like Jesus. Have you ever felt that or even said that out loud? You guys are, are you guys like this when you go to comedy clubs and stuff, sports arenas? You're allowed to talk back. Have you ever felt that in your heart? I, I know you have because you said it to me. Come on, stop lying. That's a very common feeling is I like God and I like his stuff. I just can't stand his people. They really get in the way. And so there are these these days, these seasons in our lives where we think, I would love to just be me and Jesus and get rid of all the other people. They're idiots. They only know how to hurt. And I wish there was some way of being a Christian that didn't involve other human beings. Well, be careful about that feeling. Because throughout Scripture, it could not be clearer 
The Bible never describes Christianity in a way that is solitary. Time and time and time again, what the Bible teaches, what God says, is you will see the true condition of your soul by looking at your relationships with other people. It is one of the most reliable indicators of where you are spiritually. Is not how you are in privacy with God, but how you are in relationship and community with other human beings. In fact, I would even say that the way you are habitually used to dealing with people is very likely the way you are dealing with God even now. I want to let that sink in for a second. Think about this. The way you think about and feel about and interact with God, the way that you negotiate with God, I will bet you that it reflects the same way you deal with people in your life every day. So let me ask you, when someone says, what does spiritual maturity look like? Or maybe even better yet, if someone were to ask you, are you spiritually mature? Are you spiritually mature? How would you process your answer to that question? What kind of images pop up in your mind? Maybe what kind of insecurities maybe pop up in your heart? I mean, if I were to just ask one of you at random to stand up right now and just say, hey, sister, brother, are you spiritually mature? Would you like that? (laughs) Don't do do that, right? I wouldn't like it either if I were sitting where you're sitting. But the truth is the way you process that reveals a lot about what you think spirituality is. And for a lot of people, when I ask, are you spiritually mature, their minds conjure up images of religious activity. Do I know the Bible well? Do I have a solid prayer life? Have I witnessed supernatural things? Am I seeing miracles? Am I actively involved in ministry service? All of those things are excellent indicators of a growing spiritual maturity. But you want to really know something true about your spiritual condition Look around you at the relationships closest to you. If you're married, look at your marriage. If you're a parent, look at your relationship with your children. If you're single, look at your friends, your siblings. Look at the relationship you have with your parents. And tell me what condition those relationships are in right now. Now, that's not to say that you are to be blamed for everything around you, but I am saying this. You can learn a great deal of truth about your spiritual condition by taking a hard look at the relationships in your life. Not just the good ones, but maybe especially the difficult ones. So we're going to look this morning at some ways that spiritual maturity expresses itself in human relationships, in what we call community. In verses 3, I'm sorry, in verses 2 and verse 12, Paul says that both the elders and the deacons of the church must be marked by this. They must be faithful to their wives. Faithful to their wives. It's for this reason that when we interview a new candidate to be a deacon, I mean, to be an elder or a pastor at our church, it is required that if they are married, we do an intensive interview with their wife. Their wife doesn't like that very much at all. It's it's never a a pleasant idea for them because they didn't, they're like, my husband is the one trying to become a church leader. Why do I have to get put under the, the, the microscope? But it's important to us because the state of that relationship 
will suggest to us a lot about the state of that person's soul. It won't tell us the whole story. No matter how godly you might be, sometimes things get rough at home. We understand that. But we also know this, that there's no way that your spiritual condition doesn't spill over the edges into your marriage if you're married. There's no way in which you can completely compartmentalize what's going on with you and Jesus and what's going on with you and the person that you married in the name of Jesus. It's impossible to create that scenario where you say, those two don't bleed over into each other. Do you realize that that's true? But people try every day to compartmentalize that, to say, oh, I have no problem with God, but I have lots of problems with you, and, and to pretend that there's no cross-play there, but there is. And so it's important to us to consider one of the most revealing relationships in your life to show you your true spiritual condition will be your marriage. Now, as I say that, my goal is not to make you feel guilty or insecure or question yourself. It's not, that's not the goal at all. Here's what I'm saying. That God will use your marriage as one of the primary mirrors held up to you to show you whatever you want to say is true of yourself. This relationship will reveal a lot about your spiritual condition the good and the bad. It will show you the full extent of your faith, of your forgiveness, your capacity to love unselfishly. It will also show you where your fears take over, where your doubts become bigger than God himself. It will show you where your anger and your past hurts that had nothing to do with this person are creating poison in your heart. It will show you lots of things. In fact, if you are married, I will tell you this much, the greatest relationship to reveal your spiritual condition is that relationship right there. Study it. Pray about it. Invite God to tell you the truth about it because that relationship will show you so much. What's interesting is that the language there in verse 2 and verse 12, faithful to his wife, that's an interesting choice in the English because the Greek words are literally translated a one-woman man. A one-woman man. What that means is, literally in the Greek it says, man of one woman. It's this idea that it's beyond just monogamy, but that spiritual maturity shows itself in the full engagement and opening of one person's heart towards another. And it's, I would say really what it's measuring is the capacity for loyalty. Loyalty. And I would define loyalty as devotion that lasts over the passing of time. I mean, I've seen the way that my daughters got rabid over one direction, and now when I mention, they're like, oh, Dad, that was so like last year. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's what I don't call loyalty. I call that fandom. I call that, like, I'm hot to trot for something. Flavor of the month. But loyalty lasts over the long haul. Like the guys who are still spending $300 buying boots to dress up like Gene Simmons and play in Kiss cover bands 30 years after that band pretty much stopped being a band. That's loyalty. And there's something about spiritual maturity that is seen in loyalty that, that endures the test of time. Because anybody could be really hot to trot for something today, right now, because it's good. It takes nothing to enjoy and be committed to something good. 
That's being a mammal. Even plankton like what's going on if it's good. You don't even need a brain to like what is good. But loyalty, spiritual maturity, is seen in staying true to something over time. Not just right now, but years from now. You know, Winston Churchill was famously in love with his wife, Clementine. They called her Clemmy, Clemmy Churchill. These two were just goo-goo-gaga for each other. And it's the most undignified I think he ever got was when he was with his wife. He just loved her. And once at a cocktail party, um, he was asked, I guess the dinner conversation was, if you couldn't be yourself and had to be somebody else, who would you be? And Winston Churchill famously replied, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. (laughs) I don't think he was being witty. I think he meant it. I thought, man, I wish I had said something like that. Because that's how I feel. I think that is what we all long for. And it's what, what spiritual maturity looks like, is that when I say I love, I mean it. I'm not describing a feeling. I'm describing a posture. I'm describing a commitment until death. I'm describing something that I alone, in my own power, cannot possibly hope to honor, because I'm not that strong. And that's why we say that it's the mark of spiritual maturity. Not just being spiritual, but being spiritually mature. Marriage is a relationship built on a covenant promise. It's one of the only relationships in our lives where we swear a covenant. Even between you and your children, it's sort of an implied promise, but you don't have a ceremony where after you bring the baby home, a pastor comes and goes, this is now your mommy and your dad. We don't do that, do we? But in this one relationship, you swear a covenant before God. And I think part of why marriage reveals spiritual maturity is it reveals our capacity to understand the concept of the sacred. Do you know what sacred means? Sacred means something that is unassailable and inviolable. It's a concept that has just about completely disappeared from our culture. Nothing is sacred anymore. Everything is open to discussion. Everything is negotiable today. But the idea of sacred is there are certain lines we draw that cannot be crossed no matter how strong the pressure within us. There are certain things that are so hallowed, so holy that we dare not even toy with the idea of violating them because if we do, we lose ourselves completely and everything is in free fall. If If you're jumping out of an airplane, you've got a parachute on your back and you pull the ripcord and it starts pulling at you and it's bunching up and it's really uncomfortable and tight. I suppose there's a kind of freedom to cut that cord so you're free again. What kind of freedom have you bought yourself? When you cut that irritating rip cord, that parachute cord, you're in free fall. The only thing holding you up was that uncomfortable line. And when you cut it, where are you? Where are you? The idea of sacred is this. That when I'm spiritually immature... I make an idol of my happiness. I'm not saying your happiness is not important or valid. 
I spend a lot of my time trying to be happy. I'm human. I'm a mammal. That's what we do. But in spiritual immaturity, we elevate our happiness as sacred. It is unassailable. It's inviolable. It matters above all things. What spiritual maturity says is not unhappiness is godly. That's not it. What it says is, in this unhappiness, God has provided me a very narrow way forward. And because he is holy, I trust him to deliver me on this narrow path and not anywhere else. In my eyes, I can't see it. In my heart, I cannot feel it. But that's why we call it spiritual maturity, because it sees God when the eyes cannot, when the heart cannot. The soul sees God nonetheless. And if you don't gain the capacity for that, the relationships in your life that matter most are on very, very thin ice. Paul also moves on to address not just the marriage, but the relationship we have within our family. Specifically, if you're a parent, that relationship you have with your children. And this is the part where I also get a little insecure, you know. It's Because try as you do, you can't always produce the kind of kids you wish. You know, you know what I'm saying. Most of the kids aren't here right now, so we could, let's just talk how it is, okay? I mean, <laughs> you have these dreams of how you want your kids to be, and they get to a certain point, and they're kind of there. But there are times when no matter what you've done, a child will go wayward, right? And so it does create a little bit of anxiety. If you are a parent, that's one of your great fears, isn't it? That somehow you, with your issues, with your baggage, that you are ruining your kids. While you still work out your junk, it's spilling over the edges into your kids' lives, and they don't have a chance. And so we acknowledge the fact that even if we're not spiritual people, we know that we have, that our relationship with our children is very revealing. It's exposing of something deep down in our hearts. Here's why this matters, why Paul says that if someone's going to lead in the church, they have to first demonstrate leadership in their home. In other words, lead your family first, and then you can try to lead God's family. You know these beautiful people, the celebrities and public figures that so influence us and that we admire from afar? I will wager that if you got to know them really well, you wouldn't be friends with a lot of them for too much longer. In fact, some of these beautiful people in Hollywood who have portrayed for us legendary on-screen relationships, the kind of love affair that you, right? And this is the kind of love affair that every woman watches the movie and goes, oh yeah, I'm married to that. And you look at this guy riding off into the sunset, bare-chested on a horse, and you're like, why can't, why can't I have that? I, I want that. Isn't it ironic that the same people who portray such beautiful love find it nearly impossible to hold it together in the real world? And I think that's because it's easy to admire from a great distance. Isn't that right, sweetie? It is so hard, it's so easy to admire from a distance, but that's because you're seeing a snapshot portrayed to you in just the right time, one moment at a time. But when you really get to know someone 24-7, when they can't play you or present to you or fake to you, but when you see them as they are, you see who they truly are. That's why we interview the wife, because she's the one person who has a front row view to the real dude. 
I know what I see of you in church. You're very proper. You're very, but I want to know what your wife sees of you at home. And when the wife is able to say, yeah, it's the same guy. This guy, I just, I can't believe how blessed I am that that's my man. And we're like, oh yeah, this is a good guy. When she's like, I ask a question, and we, we know how to ask the questions now. We've done this for 20 years. We know how to ask the kind of questions that allow a woman to tell the truth without feeling like she's stabbing anyone in the back. And it's important that we hear those things because the truth has to come out at some point. And I think the relationship we have with our children is perhaps the clearest mirror to where we are spiritually. And if you have the genuine respect and admiration of your children, that is one of the most solid affirmations of your spiritual condition I could think of. Because those kids have no ulterior motive to see you in a different light. They see you as you are. In fact, if you learn to see yourself through your children's eyes, you will grow to maturity even faster. Think about it the other way. Think about the way you feel about your parents. All their flaws, all their shortcomings, whatever. Isn't the way you feel about them and the nature of your relationship with them, doesn't that actually reveal something to you about their spirituality? You guys are all in a very faraway place right now. You're thinking about it, aren't you? But that's the truth. Is the way you feel about your parents, even now in adulthood, says a lot about their spirituality in the years when you were being formed in their house. And that's why, in addition to interviewing the wife, now nobody's ever going to want to become an elder here. If you're an elder and you have teenage children, we interview them too. And it's not because we're suspicious or cynical or any of that. It's because we want an opportunity for the people closest to you to affirm and validate what we have already seen in you. And we believe that that is one of the truest testimonies of a person's substance, is what his own family will say about him. Women, the same is true of you. That what your closest relationships reveal about you may be the truest thing about you. Let me give you one last thing. There's a grouping of three phrases um, peppered throughout this this, uh, passage that speak to the atmosphere a person creates around them. Do you know what I mean by atmosphere? Like, Like, you know, when you're in a sketchy neighborhood and you've run out of gas, you need 10 bucks or you need help or directions, and you're at a gas station, you're like, okay... I got to try to figure out who I can ask for help who isn't going to harm me. I've been in that position before. And you're scanning faces, but you can't tell everything from a face. There's something just about the atmosphere a person creates that sends out the signal, come towards me. I'm safe. Now, that's not a foolproof system. Sometimes I get tricked and (laughs) I get hurt by someone who masquerades as a safe person. But by and large, there is an atmosphere or an aura we all have around us. And I'm not saying in the new agey way of aura. I'm just saying there are some people who their very presence, their demeanor, their countenance says to you, come near me. And others that get the heck away from me. I don't want to be near you. And you know what kind of person that is. I guess the question I have for you is, What would the people around you say is your atmosphere? 
Relationally speaking, what do you smell like? One of the words it says is hospitable. That word in the original Greek is xenophilos, which is, which is literally stranger love. <laughs> stranger love. It, is, it, it reveals so well this rich Eastern tradition of hospitality. In the old days, there were no holiday inns, no franchise hotels where you could talk to the manager and complain. There's no Yelp or travel advisor. It was basically when you're traveling, you either camp out under the stars or you need to find a place to stay. And the private inns managed by a mom and pop were notoriously dirty and dangerous. And you might not wake up in the morning at a lot of these places. And so travelers would often hope for and count on the hospitality and kindness of strangers. And they would just knock on a random door of a house that looked generally friendly-ish. <laughs> Maybe they have a little flower hanger on the front stoop or something, and you're like, okay, let's try this one. It's the same way that a lot of people said they found our church. And I ask them, hey, how'd you find your church? They're like, well, I was going through all these websites of churches in the area, and when I got to your website, I just felt a sort of peace, like, okay, maybe. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. You, you sort of took a risk on something as way out there as our website. But that's what, that's what happens when you're a stranger in town, when you're new, and you don't know what's what. You're looking for any kind of peace you can find, any kind of openness And when you find it, you take a risk. And that's how it worked. And it's this idea that spiritual maturity expresses itself in an openness towards others, especially when there's no obligation, no payoff for us. Those guests would often eat you out of hearth and home and would not leave any money. It was just part of your obligation. And you would know that when it's your turn to travel, someone else will feed you. Now, I, I travel to speak a lot, a lot less than I used to, but I used to speak like 10 times a year. And can I make a confession to you? When I travel, I like to have my own room, preferably in a hotel, with my own bathroom, with my own space, my own driver, whatever. I just like to be kind of, that's my fleshliness. I just want to be sequestered away and sort of speak and then just be able to go, okay, I'm just going to rest now because that was draining. And most of the time, that's how it works out, and I use those times like personal retreats. But every now and then, I'll go and land at the airport, and someone will say to me, hey, my name is Joe, and you'll be staying at my apartment tonight. I'm like, dang it. (laughs) That means you're going to keep me up till 2 in the morning talking, and we're going to eat your food, and i got to go into the bathroom after you've used it and smell your, you know... So you get the idea. It's like there's a side of me in the flesh that just wants, but then whenever I, I stay in someone's home, those are my best trips. There's something about hospitality that has a powerful effect on the heart. And I just want to encourage you, church, by saying that so many of you have such a great gift of hospitality. I've been a guest in your homes and felt it sweeping over me in waves. Like, this is a family, this is a person who knows how to open themselves up to others. And I feel very welcomed in. I think that's a huge sign of spiritual maturity, is that the people around us feel that way when we're near. There's another word here, not quarrelsome. That's one word in the Greek. And the word is this. You know, I I think Scripture clearly teaches us that when it's time to fight, when we need to fight, 
it is spiritually mature to stand ready and fight when we must. God is not raising wusses, right? So when we must fight, we must fight. And I think there's a lot of that in our church. There's a lot of courage, a lot of strength. When it's time to really fight, you do fight. But there are, kind, there are a certain kind of person who's spoiling for a fight, who's happiest when they're fighting, who just loves it when somebody says something stupid, so they're like, oh, good, you said something really stupid. You walked right into that one. I'm going to rip you a new one, and I'm going to do it eloquently and in public. I can't wait to shred you right now. That's the kind of person who gets involved in Internet flame wars all the time. It's the kind of person who uses their words to provoke, to judge, to bring low. And this word, not quarrelsome, says, don't be like that. Spiritual maturity is not afraid of fighting, but doesn't relish it, doesn't enjoy fighting. If at all possible, we'll walk away from conflict if there's a better way of peace. Peace is not weakness. It is an expression of maturity. And so the Paul says in other places, make every effort to live at peace with one another. How do you use your words, and what effect do your words have on other people? What, if, and what about your opinions? You know, there's a difference between opinion and conviction. Opinions are like heart farts, right? Opinions, you say, I just think, I just think, I just think, I just think. Yeah, great. You have so many things you think, but conviction translates into your life. Are you a person of conviction or opinion? Because let me let you in on a secret. Nobody likes people of opinion. But everybody admires a person of conviction. Opinions are cheap. In fact, they're free. In fact, they're worse than free. They're worthless. <laughs> conviction, on the other hand, now that's something. So what atmosphere do you create around you? Are you spoiling for a good fight? Do you love when somebody opens the door for your clever wit to shred them to pieces? When someone calls you and says, oh, you'll never believe what she just said, do you get excited? Like, oh, tell me. Let me judge them with you. Oh, this is so good. Hold on. Let me just, let me just get some wine and get a bubble bath going and then call me back in five minutes when I'm ready to get all caught up in the drama. Are you like that? That's spiritually immature. Let me give you the last little thing there. Not malicious talkers. What that's aiming at is the spiritually immature use their words to divide rather than draw draw together. Malicious talkers... Whenever they get involved in a conversation, the net effect is if two people were a little apart, they will be a lot apart by the time you're done. And here's the sad thing. Some of the most divisive people in the church see themselves as the most loyal and supportive people in the church. Because this kind of malicious gossip and this kind of malicious talk often masquerades as tribal loyalty and support. So here's how to tell the difference. When there's a conflict and someone shares with you, I'm involved in this big mess. This person, I mean, and I think I'm in the right. I have the moral high ground here. 
I am so ticked off at what this person did to me. And when you hear those words, whose side do you take? That's the real question. Whose side do you take? The spiritually immature really only see one option. Either I'm with you on your side or I'm with the other side, right? This person did a naughty thing to you and either I'm on your team or I'm on their team, right? But is there not a third side? The side of Christ. The side that says that God shed his own blood so that the wall of hostility could be torn down. So that people who were once sworn enemies might have a bridge to cross to love one another and live in peace again. Isn't that at the heart of the gospel why God sent his only son is so that conflict wouldn't have to be the end of the story. So when someone presents you with a conflict, with a bad story, and even if they have the high moral ground, it's not supportive to say, you know what, tell me some more. What a jerk, I can't believe. And if the net effect of your talk with them is to enhance the conflict, to enhance the outrage, to feed the fire of offense, whose side have you really taken? It's not loving to have someone's back if you're pushing them over the cliff of irreconcilable conflict. That is not what loyalty looks like, brothers and sisters. Loyalty says, I love you even enough to push you back towards God, back into that relationship, against the grain of human nature, so that you will be reconciled. Because even if you win this battle, you will have lost something important to you. Don't engage in divisive talk that masquerades as support. I see it all the time. A wounded person brokenhearted in a relationship that's falling apart, and here comes my friend going, oh my God, I can't believe it. And then what did they do? Oh, just dump them. Walk away. I would never talk to them again. They would never get near me again. Now, I'm not suggesting, okay, that that's never going to be valid. Sometimes to save your life, you've got to run for the hills. But question what effect you have when you step into a situation. In general, when you speak into something, are you an adhesive, a glue? That's why I have the duct tape, by the way. <laughs> you might be wondering, what does duct tape have? Because I think spiritual maturity produces a kind of person who holds community together. And do you know that you can fix anything with duct tape? If you saw the Martian with Matt Damon, he survived on Mars with duct tape. That's just amazing. I think the makers of duct tape must have funded at least half that movie because that sold probably, I bet you if you study it, sale of duct tape spiked after that film. Spiritually mature people have that effect on community. They hold it together. They don't divide. They don't drive out. They don't separate. They don't force everyone around to pick sides. Are you with me or are you with them? What they say is God sent his son so that we wouldn't have to live in this petty world of us versus them. But there could be one new people in Christ, redeemed, saved, living at peace, held together. That's the gospel. And that's the kind of person spiritual maturity produces. So let me just ask as we wrap up here, what do your closest relationships reveal to you about the condition of your heart? About your spiritual condition?
If you're married, does your spouse know that you are loyal? Not just loyalty in the good times, but loyal over the long haul, dug in, committed. Do you know what sacred means? Do you trust God in that? That when he gives you an impossibly narrow path, you say, still, I will walk. If you tell me this is the only way forward, don't let me fall. That's not easy to say. I'm sure it's not easy to hear. If you have children or if you are someone's child, do you see that the admiration and respect between parents and children reveals a great deal about your spiritual condition? Do you know that it is a privilege of every parent to help their children understand what it feels like to be accepted and safe and in the Father's hand? And when you get involved in a situation, would the people around you say that they felt safe around you? They sensed an openness? That whenever they were around you, there was an inclusive spirit rather than exclusive? Are you the kind of person who can engage in a conversation while a third party is sitting on the wings looking uncomfortable and just say, I know I see you sitting there, but I'm involved in this right now. Are you the kind of person who goes, hang on one second. Hey, I don't know you yet, but my name is Dave. You're just sitting there on the wings looking really uncomfortable. Why don't you get in on it? You know what I'm saying? Like, Get in here. Join us. Just sit down right here. We're, two of us were talking. You're just sitting there watching. Get in here. Do you have an opinion about this? Is that the kind of heart you have? Because I think that's what spiritual maturity looks like. It's an open, inclusive, adhesive kind of effect on people. Not the kind of effect that drives people apart. And it takes courage and faith to live like that in community. I long for our church to grow in this, these ways. and Pray for me because I want to model that kind of community in my own life. I hope that as you grow in the Lord, you'll start to see that's one of the primary ways we see our faith. Keep in mind, too, Frankie, I'll just say this word to you. Keep in mind that some of the most fruitful missionaries come home from the field because they cannot get along with their teammates, right? And that's why even in something like that kind of work, community really tells the tale of the soul, of the heart. If you want to know where you are spiritually, study your relationships. God will tell you the truth about your spiritual condition largely through that lens. Let's, let's pray together. You know, I, I think we've all had the fantasy of running into the desert, leaving behind all our relationships, and just me by myself with God. Go to the Catholic seminary Mundelein and do it for a few days, but, you know, that's not a way to live. Because God has actually made us for community. And rather than feeling wounded, disappointed, 
offended by all your relationships, let the Lord hold those relationships up to you as a window into your heart too. Community will always disappoint because community is made up of fallen people. But we are not made to live without it either. It's always been my dream that at Harvest we would experience that kind of real, deep, meaningful community. Why don't we just ask the Lord to do whatever he needs to do in us to produce that kind of connection among us, to shape us into that kind of people. Let's just take a moment and let's just pray, get quiet before the Lord and just let him do his work. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.